0: Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidl, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare.
1: And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows.
0: We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions.
1: Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue.
0: Today is Sunday, August 8th, 2021, and we've got something a little special for you. We're pulling to meet the press in
1: the Olympics.
0: Well, not quite that, because they just don't show up when the Olympics are happening. We show up.
1: Their podcast feed is showing yes. episodes of Meet the Press reports.
0: No, you're that's very true. That's very they true. They're trying. Yes. Well, here's the story. <laughs> We've got some... We're
1: Olympians.
0: <laughs> exactly. You might not know this about us, because we're pretty tight-lipped. But we are Olympians. It's true. <laughs> of some kind. <laughs> but no, so we are taking some time this summer for ourselves and our little family. But we are still here for you every week. We we are committed to doing that. So what we have are some fun special episodes for you. This first one is actually kind of interesting. It's kind of newsy-ish. And that is that what we're going to do is we're going to look at... The Sunday shows, like we always do. Like we always do, exactly. Complete with clips that you have never heard before. And these are essentially moments that took place over the last few weeks that are kind of evergreen moments that we thought were noteworthy, worthy of talking about, but just didn't make the cut. They didn't fall into the easy topics and subjects that we had kind of built our shows around for those last few episodes. Totally,
1: And we, you know, beat the shows about this, that there's so many important topics and then they need to cover them and then they do, or they talk about things in new, interesting ways. And then... We're pressed for time and don't talk about them either. So we wanted to take this time while we're on vacation to kind of look at some of those extra topics that, you know, we jot down in our notes and we don't get to share it with you all.
0: So without further ado, this episode is going to be kind of like a highlight to lowlight sort of sort of thing, a bunch of, a bunch of highlights, although some things, you know, we might have issues uh, So with.
1: is it throwback, highlight, lowlight, since we're technically quality questionable? Yeah, it might be throwback. How about that? <laughs> What are we doing next week, Brendan?
0: Yeah, so next week is also going to be fun, and we have to tell you about it here at the beginning of the episode, because if you don't get through it, you should at least know what's going to happen next week. Next week will be a special episode, but it will be a Pylog at the Movies episode. So we're going to tell you what movie we are going to watch, and then we're going to have a really deep, exciting discussion. This is a movie about journalism. About politics, and um, one we had never seen before. It is The Insider from the year 1999, directed by Michael Mann, starring Al Pacino and Russell Crowe and Christopher Plummer, playing Mike Wallace. That is true. The father of Chris Wallace. And if you've been a longtime polylogue listener, you may remember that. A few years ago, we did a special episode about a new documentary. We got an exclusive look at a new documentary about Mike Wallace and spoke to the director of that one. We don't have Michael Mann (laughs) on
2: the phone for this (laughs) one. That would
0: have been kind of cool. But we will have a fun discussion full of clips, our take on the movie, and our take on some of the journalism issues that were raised by the movie.
1: Absolutely. So if you have time, take a quick viewing. It's not the quickest movie, so maybe break it up over two nights, but it might make next week's show a little bit more enticing
0: yep and it is available to stream on amazon prime if you happen to have that absolutely all right so let's get on to today's episode so why don't we begin with
1: let's talk about infrastructure there's been a lot of action and movement in moving that in the senate and in the house
0: All right. That sounds perfect. That brings us back to Face the Nation. From July 25th, we had on Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo.
1: Yeah. And we have spoken about how jennifer granholm the energy secretary has been such a forceful defender of the full infrastructure package proposed by the white house and there's been other people from the administration who really haven't had as robust of a of a defense of a case um this has been particularly true for the human infrastructure package
0: yeah there has not been a lot of i guess strong defense of that human infrastructure we've heard lots about roads and bridges and
1: broadband
0: yep but not a lot about the human infrastructure but
1: or i mean or it's said as like an afterthought
0: yes right and you know it makes sense because the initial focus has been the bipartisan infrastructure framework the BIF, as they called it On Capitol Hill, which is now the bib, because it's actually a bill. It's the bipartisan infrastructure bill.
1: This is so insidery. Yes.
0: But it looks like it's, you know, they're going to try to bring it to a vote as, well... I
1: think this week, maybe.
0: Yeah, as early as this weekend. We'll see if it took place. People will know if it happened on Saturday. But with that one going out of the Senate, the House is taking up the...
1: The reconciliation bill.
0: Budget reconciliation bill that has a lot of this soft infrastructure. And so hearing Gina Raimondo talk about that was pretty powerful. Let's hear this short exchange with John Dickerson. You mentioned
3: workplaces, people coming back to work after Labor Day. Do CEO? there's a, you know, it seems to be some tension between CEOs who want people back and surveys would show people want to stay with these hybrid environments. Thinking of childcare as a part of that, how do you see that, tussle getting worked out
1: we need better higher quality affordable childcare. you know i do hear from businesses all the time that women are turning down promotions you know some of their star employees who are women they want to get a promotion and women say i can't do it because i i have child care needs um or women aren't coming back into the workforce. We still have 2 million women who fell out of the workforce who haven't reentered. So, you know, you talk about infrastructure, and yes, we need bridges and roads to get to work. Women need childcare so that they can get to work and be productive, and it needs to be affordable. And so I think this is, uh, it's core to our competitiveness, to have a better kind of family care infrastructure in America that's affordable, Mm -hmm. that's affordable.
3: All right, Secretary Raimondo, we're out of time. Thank you so much for being with us.
0: So leave it to face the nation, even in Margaret Brennan's absence to be focused on...
1: Absence for child care. Yes, for (laughs)
0: issues of child care. Yeah, to still be focused on these important topics. It really struck me that that phrase that Raimondo used there when she said, you talk about infrastructure, we need bridges and roads to get to work. Women need childcare so they can get to
1: work. Ideally, in a fair world... Yeah. Men and women would need childcare to go to work. But that has not been the case the last eighteen months. Men are still going to work and women are facing the brunt of child care and school responsibilities. And getting affordable childcare would be a game changer for the careers of millions and millions of women. But I just love this kind of idea that like childcare is a bridge, its own kind of bridge. Yes. It's just such a powerful image.
0: And hopefully something that people talk about more it was interesting on one of the meet the press no chuck todd episodes that i heard over the last week or so chuck todd was speaking with chris matthews
1: <laughs> he's only allowed on podcast now
0: <laughs> one thing i learned on there is i had no idea chris matthews used to be a capital police officer that's so weird yeah no idea no idea But he also worked for Tip O'Neill, who was the Speaker of the House back in the 1980s, a very powerful Democratic Speaker at the time, who worked hand-in-hand with Ronald Reagan, sometimes in opposition to him, as you can imagine. But one of the comments on that podcast was the surprise over how Democrats are selling or not selling these infrastructure bills, aren't really necessarily putting out long lists of bridges and roads and, and and things like we're hearing from Gina Raimondo here to a large extent to kind of get people excited about what these infrastructure bills are. We hear a lot about the need and the necessity of these things, but we don't often see a, a picture painted of that brighter future where we have the infrastructure. A lot of times we get the sense of like, we need this infrastructure to clean up, to fix our crumbling infrastructure, to get the lead out of the water, really just to get back up to speed. But some of the stuff is stuff that the Democrats should really and Republicans, too, who are for this, should argue for it because it's going to get the public excited that government can do something big and good again.
1: And we'll have immediate changes in their lives, in their workplaces or in just kind of their ability to kind of run their business. I think there was another, I can't remember who the conversation conversation was with. I think it was governor Hutchinson. I believe that John Dickerson asked him kind of what would the infrastructure package, how would it impact the economy in that region? And apparently there's like some major interstate that is like crumbling and is causing like billions of dollars of lost goods. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. Remember? Absolutely. I forget which freeway it was. But, you know, it's things like that it, that impacts people's daily lives and their and their place of business. Yeah. Well,
0: and speaking of the economy, that kind of takes us to the next clip. Now, this is a clip from not too long ago. This was the beginning of this month, August 1st. Brian Deese, Biden's economic advisor and director of the his economic council, was on Fox News Sunday speaking with. Dana Perino and Dana Perino asked about what's going on with all this money pouring into the economy. Is there something we might worry about that? Is the government putting so much money into the economy that essentially we might see the economy get overloaded? Some people have suggested this might be the case when all these infrastructure bills go in. Here is an interesting take on that issue, a defense of these infrastructure bills and of the health of our economy by Brian Deese and the Biden administration. Let's take a listen.
1: Billionaire businessman Ken Langone said, however, that—and he's not alone. People like Larry Summers, allies of the White House, are concerned about inflation if the government puts way too much money into the system. Here's what Ken Langone said. I think you're going to take a white-hot fire and throw a five-gallon gas can on top of it. You're going to have flames so high. It's going to be incredible. Is the president concerned about the risk of inflation as we go forward here?
4: So I want to separate out two very different things. Certainly the price increases that we've seen over the last couple of months are are real, and we've seen them in areas like cars and hotel prices, airlines, food, but they share one thing in common, which is they're all connected to the pandemic, and they're all connected to the kinds of supply chain bottlenecks and issues that we have when we wake up an economy that was dormant. And we, in almost every independent forecaster, look forward and see that those will dissipate as this economic recovery advances. There's a very different question from what the impact will be of long-term investments in our economy's productive capacity and in our economy's workforce. And long-term investments, like what we're talking about in the infrastructure package that will actually improve our ports and our airports, our roads and our bridges, that will actually break bottlenecks in our economy. It will make it easier to get goods and services flowing. It'll actually lower prices over the long-term. If we can get more people into the workforce by investing in things like quality childcare, so more parents and more women can work in the workforce, that will increase labor supply. It'll actually reduce price pressures on our economy. Mm. And so those long-term investments, it's a very different thing. And that's an economic strategy that I think you have broad, you see broad support for. And frankly, those are investments that are long overdue and are the kinds of things that will sustain not only a strong recovery, but actually help to put downward pressure on prices going forward.
0: So I feel like Brian Deese would be a pretty good professor or teacher here. I was just
1: thinking that. It's such like in a like a light bulb moment in, you know, intro econ class.
0: Yeah. Kind of like, yes, this is the government putting money into the economy. And yes, sometimes that could potentially overheat the economy, but this is a different kind of money that's going to different things for a different purpose, right? If the U.S. government was in fact taking this, you know, these billions, no, trillions of dollars in the case of the bib, $1 trillion dollars and putting it into the pockets of all consumers and all citizens, then yes, that probably could overheat the economy. But that's not where it's going, right? It's going to long-term, long-term investments.
1: investments. hmm
0: so I think he did a really good job here of thoughtfully explaining the situation and giving it, you a sense of the direction of how, like, the directionality of we invest in this here and then this thing happens in the economy. Right.
1: And I think also acknowledging the pain points that people are freaked out about or some people are freaked out about right now or the fear of inflation. Right. He doesn't kind of dismiss that there are increase in in the cost of certain goods right now, but he kind of notes that it's because our economy has been held back for so long that there's kind of this pent-up demand. Exactly. exactly. And pent-up supply chain issues.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Huge supply chain issues. People want everything now, but it wasn't being made. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Literally. So we found that, that clip very, very instructive.
1: So, of course, absolutely. The pandemic has had huge impacts on our economy and our ability to you know, purchase certain goods. But there's been other impacts as well, including you know, human services more broadly. And Jerome Adams, he's the former Surgeon General. He was a Surgeon General under President Trump. You know, during the pandemic, we heard from him a lot these last couple of years, but he was on Face the Nation on July 25th, that same episode that we were talking about, (laughs) Secretary Raimundo. Great episode. (laughs) You should check it out if you didn't get to it. (laughs) But he mentioned how a break in services is also a leading contributor to these terrible overdoses that we've seen spike during the pandemic
3: doctor i want to get to the question of overdoses a record number of overdoses last year this is an issue you've worked on that it's very important to you why is the overdose number up
2: John, this is personal to me. As as I've talked about before, I have family members, my own brother, who's suffering from substance use disorder. And in 2020, we saw numbers skyrocket. We had a record year in 2019, 70,000 people sadly died of drug overdoses. We blew that away last year because of COVID. 93,000 people died. And we know that both isolation from COVID, stress from COVID, but also uh, cut off of resources, Forty three percent of people reported decreases in services available through syringe service programs because of the pandemic have combined to cause this explosion. And it's disproportionately impacting black and brown communities, a 20 percent rise in whites, a 30 percent rise in blacks and Hispanics in overdose deaths last year.
3: We have 20 seconds. What's the next step? What can be done?
2: Well, I'm working with the Bipartisan Policy Committee, I want to applaud Congress for combining their mental health and addiction task forces. And we need to really ramp up telehealth services, which came about because of COVID, which are really the silver lining here in terms of making services more available. There is All hope, right. but we've got to be able to pay attention to it.
0: I mean, these numbers are just staggering. 93,000 people died of drug overdoses in the last year. And he, Jerome Adams is absolutely right here. You know? There's hope, but we've got to be able to pay attention to it. You know, we've seen special episodes and segments on all sorts of issues over the last few years. I can't remember one about this issue. A whole episode, you know, experts from all over the place coming together to talk about 93,000 people dead
1: in one year. Preventable deaths. On top of the hundreds of thousands of people who passed from COVID itself. Right. And I think the other thing, and I recognize they were kind of pressed for time here, but another part of this is there's been so much talk and fear mongering about the increase of crime in cities across America, which are also impacted by the lack of social services for teenagers and young adults and, you know, people who've left the prison system and reentry programs, like all of those services have been impacted and has really affected the economic and security of complete neighborhoods.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I would love to see more conversation about this. And we're not even talking about you know, the people who didn't die of drug overdoses, but had to go to the hospital and have had their lives shattered by these issues and are just dealing with them every single day.
1: Yeah, too many times we talk about the pandemic as like the public health response. And then we talk about crime as another response. and Then we talk about mental health as another response, but all these things impact each other and none of the thing exists in a vacuum, right? People have these full lives and they're all intertwined.
0: Right. I mean, it's easy if you watch TV to think, you know, obviously you have your own personal experience of the pandemic. But a lot of the TV news is the pandemic is what's happening at the hospitals. Right. Right. Exactly. And it's and now what's
1: happening in schools, what's
0: happening in schools, it's people complaining or dealing with masks at restaurants and grocery stores and the economy, you know, people working from home. That's the story. Right. I mean, those are the main points. And obviously, some of those are bigger than others in the news.
1: And they are stories, but they're not the only ones. Right. Well, speaking of COVID, there was also a really important moment in an interview last month with Dr. Fauci when he explained the FDA authorization process, which is important because there is concern that the fact that the COVID vaccines are only under emergency use, is a barrier to, to people who are hesitant on getting the vaccine as soon as possible.
5: One of the states with low vaccination rates is Arkansas. The governor, Asa Hutchison, is up next. His state is 44th now in the country. And he said that the lack of full authorization from the FDA is contributing to vaccine hesitancy. How do you respond to that? And how far do you think we are from full authorization? You know, I think the governor does have a point there. There are certainly some people who, when you use the terminology emergency use authorization, they kind of think it's a, a tenuous uh, data showing that it's works so that it's safe. That's not the case. In some emergency use authorization for other products, the amount of data just barely gets to show you that the benefit is definitely worth any risk. When you're dealing with the data that we have now george you're talking about hundreds of millions of people who've been vaccinated and in every country you go to you see that the effectiveness and the safety of the vaccines are very high so although it's understandable quite understandable that some people might say well we want to wait for the full approval that's really only a technical issue it's the fda dotting the i's and crossing the t's. But there's no doubt in my mind that these vaccines are going to get full approval because of the extraordinary amount of positive data. But the governor is correct when he says that there are some people who are saying that, who understandably saying, no, no, I want to wait. What we're trying to do is get the information to them to say that the data are really overwhelming in the positive sense.
0: So if you're an avid... Listener of Polylog, you may recognize that we kind of uh, played a clip we have played before here, but that's because there has been news about the FDA's emergency use authorization of the COVID-19 vaccine, at least the one from Pfizer, and that is that they expect that they will have full authorization within the next few weeks, likely in early September. This is great news for all of those who have been hesitant to take the vaccine because they're worried about emergency use and also for organizations that have been slow to mandate the vaccine because they are concerned about mandating something that's under emergency use authorization it still seems bizarre i think to most people why it's still under emergency use authorization because we know it's safe we know it's effective It's been given to millions upon millions upon millions of people. It's certainly safer to take that than to get COVID. So why is it under emergency use authorization? And I kept wondering this, and I kept hearing people like we heard here, George Stephanopoulos, ask why we're far from emergency use authorization. When is it going to happen? What's going on? And then these answers from people like Fauci saying, Yes, there's a problem that it hasn't been fully authorized, like that could be an issue, but, you know, we're hoping it'll be happening soon. I was able to dig up some information about what it entails, this emergency use authorization, like why in the world is it taking so long? There was an excellent article by Stat, which is a trade publication that covers the healthcare space. What they indicated was that typically these sorts of full authorizations take probably between nine and 10 months. The authorization can't happen until there's a submission from the drug maker for full authorization. That did not happen. Pfizer did not do that until May. So you think, okay, it started in May. So nine to 10 months from then, that's when full authorization can happen. However, there is a way to fast track this authorization. There are capabilities to do that. And under a fast track, it's supposed to take about six months to do the authorization. But this vaccine, people at the FDA didn't decide to fast track it until July. So for two months, it sat there under the regular process while people in that office were focused on other things and just you know slowly doing the job of authorization, which seems very bizarre and unacceptable during a pandemic. But then it's like, okay, well, what is this? What is authorization? What does it do? Now, there is a lot of data they have to look at, but what I didn't realize was emergency use authorization, full authorization, full approval, requires not just review of safety data, it's not just a stamp of approval for safety, it's about how you can sell it. So in these approvals, they have to hash out agreements between the fda and pfizer about things like how you can market it what can be on the packaging what can be in the tv advertisements how much you can charge for it like all of those very businessy sort of things that have nothing to do with safety are also a part of this authorization process And that is, as you can imagine, quite a negotiation when any company invests as much money as Pfizer did in developing such an important drug. So I really wish there was something between emergency use and now you can sell it on television that just said, this is safe and we'll hash out the business stuff later. But apparently there isn't. It goes straight from emergency to full approval. And that's what we're waiting for. And finally, we heard this last week, that is something that is going to happen soon.
1: I have kind of two immediate responses. One is I'm skeptical (laughs) that the full authorization will suddenly inspire droves of people to vaccine clinics. I feel like the disinformation campaigns have been too effective the last year and a half. So that's kind of the cynic in me, but I don't think I'm wrong. And then
0: Two, I, I have something to say to that, but I'll let you continue.
1: Well, and two, it is a shame that the public has not been notified about the distinction between emergency use and full authorization. Right? right. That if people kind of knew the ex- how exhaustive the full authorization is, then maybe they kind of wouldn't be waiting in limbo for it. Yeah. But again, if people really cared about the authorization process they would look into how extensive the emergency use authorization like what their data requirements are and i think it would be compelling so that's kind of where my skepticism lies. like it's not like the emergency use only looks at like six people you know like there were hundreds of thousands of people in these tests and now millions of people have taken it so (laughs) we have a lot of data have a lot of data since last December when the, first, when the emergency use was authorized and the trials were happening even before then. So we have clearly a year's worth of data.
0: Yeah, we have tons and tons of data. So to answer the first thing you said, there have been surveys among people who are skeptical of the vaccine and have not gotten the vaccine. 30% of those say that full authorization would affect their decision to actually get the vaccine. And that represents a lot of people, as you can imagine, in the United States, when only about half of the people who can get a vaccine have gotten the vaccine. Although I guess we're at 70% now.
1: Yeah, it's 30% of the people who've said that they wouldn't be willing to take it. It's not 30% of the general public. No, certainly, certainly. Yeah, it's 30% of the hesitant.
0: Yeah, 30% of the 30% (laughs) that we have in the U.S. But still, that's a lot of people. Um, So, And then to the second thing that you said, I wonder, and it would be really interesting to look into this, like, yes, We say people should follow the data. They should understand this. They should not worry, blah, 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 blah. Look at the science, follow the science. We've all heard that forever. But what is the alignment between people who are hesitant about this vaccine and people who buy into and spend a good portion of their money on things like supplements and diet pills? and the
1: wellness industry in general. That whole
0: wellness, that's what I'm saying. Like we, yes, we have hard medicine as you might call it the stuff at hospitals and
1: the regulated
0: yeah the regulated medicine stuff but then you've got you know everything that's sold in gnc or half the stuff in the health air part of a walgreens or a cvs like there's a lot of stuff there there's a whole industry that is built on trying to tell you things about your body that maybe you don't need or maybe aren't really backed up by a lot of science or are you know, heavily leaning on the placebo effect, right?
1: It doesn't matter, I mean, they're just not regulated, <laughs> period, and people gobble it up. Right,
0: but yeah. it's, it's a whole industry that is built on kind of shaky science, and so when you have strong science, people are, are in a health information stream environment that isn't always as clear as black and white and black and white as we would think, right? If the supplement industry was extremely regulated, and you couldn't sell a supplement unless it actually did something real for your life, then I think people might have more faith in this vaccine when people told them it's real and it works. That's just a But we could
1: make the same argument for certain foods. We could make it for, there's a lot of food on our shelves that is questionable. In terms of the health of it. Yeah. In terms of it's questionable that it should be counted as food. Like... What is there some European country that like oh, said yes. subway can't call their bread bread, yes, it' has, like too much sugar yeah, yep. they can't <laughs>
0: call it bread,
1: you're not bread here,
0: <laughs> you're a pastry.
1: So the last clip we wanted to share was something regarding climate change. We've seen a lot more climate change conversations and interviews the last few months. There's been kind of the fires up in the Pacific Northwest. There's a huge drought in on the West Coast all the way through Utah. There's the storms in the Southeast. There were the floods in Europe. There was that, that crazy cold s- snap in... Oh in Texas, Texas, yeah. That shut there, down their power. There was the crazy heat wave in the in Seattle and in the Pacific Northwest has had a rough year. And and all these things are changing how we talk about climate. It just seems so it's not theoretical, I guess what I'm right. is, is what I'm saying. And on Face the Nation, Mark Strassman did this amazing report from las cruces on july 11th and i thought he did such a great job in explaining how all of these events are connected in <laughs> that the the climate is not just happening in these tiny little places but what happens in one area affects another
6: california bakes and burns this weekend wildfires here and in 15 states blistering triple digit heat The worst drought in modern history. Death Valley hit 130 degrees, among the highest temperatures ever recorded on Earth. Northern California all the way down to Palm Springs, where it'll be probably above 120 degrees, which for any
0: other year would be beyond alarming. But for this year, it just seems like it's routine.
6: Look at today's forecast for highs in the West. Las Vegas, 117, the current record. Redding, California, 112. Phoenix, 110.
0: feels like I'm walking into an oven when I walk outside.
6: (laughs) Across the west, it's the same oven. Temperatures could climb up to 25 degrees above average. Farmers watch crops die. Water the best of it and the rest of it will have to burn. Here in New Mexico, Saturday's high hit 100. And if you're thinking, but it's dry heat, trust me, 100 degrees feels like 100 degrees. Climatologists say... Get used to it. Climate change enhances the extremes. So that's what we're seeing happen across the country. The middle of the country is under an enhanced risk of thunderstorms, a dual threat of high winds and possible hail. And as the west gets hotter, the east gets wetter, now drying out from Elsa. It formed nearly a month earlier than similar storms in the past. We got hit hard. We got a lot of water in the house. A lot of neighbors got water in the house. Thursday's rainfall totals came straight from the Old Testament. Key West and Port Charlotte, Florida, almost 11 inches. To climatologists, all this extreme weather, this coast-to-coast misery, looks like a moment of reckoning. And because California arguably has it the worst this weekend, its governor
5: gets today's final word. The hot's are getting a lot hotter, the dries are getting a lot drier, and climate change is real and it's here. And if you don't believe it, because uh, you don't believe science, you got to believe your own eyes.
0: So a powerful report that really pulled a lot of strands together. Right? Impressively done on what's happening in real time right now. Now, I, I have, I take issue with some things he said. I mean, it was 120 degrees here today, as <laughs> before we recorded this.
1: Today was horrible.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's 11 p.m. and it's 104 still outside. <laughs> but uh the
1: winters are beautiful okay yes, but a
0: hundred a hundred <laughs> degrees in dry heat is uh, we've lived in humid places it's much better it's in much dry different heat. than yeah yes now my question to you naomi since you watched this show on july 11th when it happened which by the way pretty much every word he says here applies today right
1: <laughs> to our weather Yes, today. Yeah, yeah,
0: which is crazy. I mean, there's and there's still tons of fires. I think even more now in Northern California that that, that are taking place. But my question is, was this followed by discussion of policy
1: of what the government's going to do about it? Of uh, anything like that? I don't remember. I I thought I could. I thought I did. I don't remember what were the other interviews that day.
0: Uh, so just uh, a quick look at your notes, it does look like there was a discussion. About the airline industry after this? Oh,
1: so. I think it was the day that, I think it was maybe United or whoever the CEO was, they were talking right. about how climate change is impacting the airline That's industry. That's true.
0: That's true. Which was interesting. So that is that is important. And it is important to remind people what's going on. So it, <laughs>
1: yeah, the, the the CEO, I think it was United, but it could have been another one. It it's was like, we need to be better at flying in bad weather. And John Dickerson's like, Really? <laughs> that, that That's the solution. Uh, but the, there was other, you know, sub- substantive ideas on how to improve flying in rough weather and, and really keeping the jetways open at airports, that that is kind of where the bottlenecks happen.
0: Mm, interesting. Very interesting. But yeah, so... That's really important to talk about. And there were other moments throughout the last few weeks where we have heard important climate discussions. I think of one, for example, on State of the Union with the governor of Washington, Kate Brown, talking about the issues of forest burning and what can be done about it. Yeah, Not just just like some climate policy, but what are you going to do now to stop this from burning or to keep it from getting out of control?
1: Yeah, Kate Brown was also on... Face the nation, as was the governor of Utah, which I thought was really interesting, kind of a Democratic and Republican governor talking hand in hand about their climate change policies in the respective states. But I think what... Mark Strassman does most notably here is connecting it together, right? That yeah, we should care about the storms in Florida and this <laughs> Texans should care about fires in the Pacific Northwest. And too many times we think of weather as this like local issue, but that's not how climate change works. And it's really kind of, a, a I mean, it is a global issue. And what's impacting one community in one area is going to inevitably impact the climate in another area so i just thought it was so well done to kind of make that case that it's this is not like a local state fight
0: absolutely and and the changes will be dramatic right as we're learning things like crops that aren't growing right or a crazy thing i just i opened and was reading to our new baby uh certainly she wasn't fully understanding i'm (laughs) sure uh, Bill Bryson's A Walk in the Woods. Oh, that's
1: right, you were. <laughs> yeah,
0: this week, which is his story of walking the Appalachian, hiking the Appalachian Trail. And it's it's very funny and lots of fun. But he notes that, and this was written, I don't know, the early 90s, early to mid 90s, this book. And he talks about how if there's a 3.5 to 4.5 degree increase in the average temperature, the Appalachian Mountains, which are very green and lush, could very well become Savannah. You know, I mean, think about that where we imagine lions roaming the Appalachian Mountains within a hundred years could be Savannah. I mean, that's just craziness. It seems like crazy talk, but these are major issues. And it's like, how can just three degree difference do that? But it's not just the three degrees, right? It's it's all these crazy changes, all these dramatic changes that are being discussed. All right, Naomi. Well, that takes us to our dialogue challenge today. What are we going to leave people with? This was kind of an interesting opportunity to go back and and look at some of these highlights that are kind of off the beaten path.
1: I mean, I I think in general, there's oftentimes we hear something that kind of really stays in our brain and it kind of really burrows in. And so I would take the time to think about something that's been kind of marinating in the back of your mind and like find an opportunity to like chat about it. I'm so glad we didn't have what the policy negotiations of the infrastructure bill in Congress are and the latest about the variant changes in COVID. But this was a conversation about other things that are also happening in the world that people are talking about that we find compelling and have kind of been burrowing in the back of our minds.
0: Right. Yeah. Just because it's not like newsy in the sense of what's happening week to week. It doesn't change week to week. But these are larger trends, larger issues that are really worth discussing. And having a conversation about absolutely don't just talk about the weather as your small talk maybe talk about the climate dun dun
1: dun <laughs> well if you have anything you want to share with us we'd be delighted to hear it you can email us at podcast at polylog.com you can tweet at me at soto naomi underscore
0: you can tweet or follow me at beast and you can follow the show at polylog cast thanks everyone and we will talk with you next week with that fun movie discussion
1: Talk to you then. Bye.
0: Bye. Bye.